When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Football Digest Extra Time. As always, my name is Ned Keating and I'm joined this week by Harry Brent as we run the rule over another busy weekend of Premier League action. Harry, I suppose there's only one place that we can really start. Unfortunately for me, the resident Tottenham fan on this podcast, it has to be another defeat that we, we're talking about for Spurs. But as you said there, um, at, least it's, at least it's entertaining. At least if Tottenham, uh, if we're going down in flames, at least, you know, we're kind of giving everyone the action that they want and they crave. Uh, this time, a 4-3 defeat uh, at Anfield, coming back from 3-0 down, scoring an injury time equaliser and looking like we were going to escape with a point only to probably do the most Tottenham thing possible and, and capitulate with the limited time remaining and, and concede a, an injury time winner to Diogo Jota. Diogo Jota is where we're going to start this morning uh, today as well, Harry, but not for his scoring prowess, the factors to whether or not he should have been on the pitch in the first place. Now, I suppose there's a weird kind of additional plot line to this in that Diogo Jota was lucky perhaps not to see red, at least in my opinion, we'll come on to yours in a second, not to see red uh, for for a high boot that connected with Oliver Skip's head. Oliver Skip himself, perhaps lucky, some might say, to still be on the pitch for a foul on uh, Luis Diaz in the first half. Just on those two decisions for yourself, were they the wrong ones? Did the referee get it wrong or did the VAR official get it wrong for not intervening? I think in both instances, you can probably make an argument to say it was, that they were both wrong. I mean, my sort of general takeaway from that, as much as it's not particularly nice for Tottenham fans to hear given the defeat but I think it kind of just shows how these sorts of incidents do balance themselves out in a way um but I think you know I, I obviously the, the the Jota one is for me is more difficult because it's more hard harder to take because I think it sort of encapsulates why fans are so irked with VAR over the last few years it's just sort of that lack of consistency personified um, the amount of situations we've seen given given for Reds and in that situation, so um, you know, I think Tottenham fans have, have every right to, to feel aggrieved. There is there is a definite sense that Skip could could, could have also not been on on the pitch as well, uh, but he's not the one who's going up the other, the other end and scoring the winner. So that's uh, that's that that but it's very hard to take, and I, I can understand why Tottenham fans feel aggrieved. In terms of the nature of the winner as well, um, the fact that Tottenham scored that equaliser. All they had to do was see it out from the end, and a, and a disastrous mistake from Lucas Moura uh, handling Diogo Jota the chance to run through on goal and score past Fraser Forster. In terms of that itself as well, you know, you spoke about kind of how the red card situations might, you know, kind of sum up Tottenham's bad luck this season. But at times as well, they've been architects of their own downfall a lot of it, and and that again, that goal there conceding so late on after doing so so well to drag themselves back into that game to throw it all away with just seconds remaining, really kind of summed up uh, how Tottenham are, in terms of mentally this season, perhaps not where they would like to be. 
Yes and no. I mean, I think they they've you've obviously Tottenham have obviously had big defensive problems, particularly in the last few weeks. But you know, I, I think there's argument to say over the course of the season, uh, you know, uh, and I think really that the mistake that led to Joss's goal I, was just a was just a misplaced pass. I don't I don't know whether that necessarily personifies the, the Tottenham's problems. I mean, it sort of I remember the Champions League tie that you Tottenham beat Manchester City a few years ago where um, the, the, was it the disallowed goal in the last minute. Was, am I right in thinking that was a, a Christian Eriksen misplaced pass? So I, I, don't, I don't know whether these things are necessarily sort of, you know, showing anything, you know, particularly important. But um, yeah, you, you do just think when you score a goal in the last minute, I mean, the absolute number one rule of football is do not get complacent about it and you know, keep your heads on. But at the same time, when you fought back from 3-0 down, there is probably an element of we've absolutely we've done this you know let's let's sort of enjoy enjoy the moment but yeah as you say there's no excuse for for letting for, for losing a game like that over such a sloppy mistake and it must have been so painful to to do it in that way i'm, I'm sure as well i know uh, lucas Moura and michelle are not a good friends being brazilians uh in in the tottenham squad but uh, I wonder if the way that Richarlison had celebrated his equaliser as well, he was kind of, um, yeah, perhaps not speaking to Mr. Moore on the bus on the way back for for, uh, for that error as well. I'm sure that might have been a little bit frosty there. Um, one man and one team that have hit form throughout the season uh, and are hitting form at such a crucial stage of the campaign, even more so. Uh, Erling Haaland, Manchester City, equaling the Premier League record for most goals in a campaign. We no longer have to say it's the most goals in the 38 game campaign. He's now equaled the outright record sharing that with Andy Cole chances are he will probably add to that before the end of the campaign and we're probably talking about the first person to get a fourth goal season in the Premier League uh, no matter how many games they play but in terms of Haaland and what he does and how he gets these goals you know people have spoken about whether or not he's the missing link for another competition in the Champions League but the way that he's taken to the Premier League Harry this season you know the kind of everyone spoke about maybe that the Bundesliga wasn't as as competitive as the Premier League is, you know, maybe he might take from it to adapt, you know, and he'd never gone, he'd never had a season in the Bundesliga where he was going, you know, more than the goal a game. He's come over to England. He's, his ratio is, is superb through the roof. Does it just show that he is just this absolute, you know, kind of, I don't want to use the term freak because it suggests something else, but he's just this absolute, these players coming on once in a generation almost, you know, kind of, but they just somehow, the ball just gets attracted to them and they can just find a net and always within that kind of six-yard box as well. They just kind of like a real true fox in a box. And he's just really shown himself this season that he is up there with, with you know, the best of the talents that we're going to see for the next decade. I think so. I mean, he's shaping up to be truly the best goal scorer of his generation, possibly even a couple of generations be, behind him in terms of true, genuine, as you say, I mean, fo- fox in a box or, you know, I mean, that's, that is a big part of his game, just being, you know, being in the right place, being able to take the shot when it, when it needs to be, being able to produce a, Good shot, getting the right areas to you know produce the right sort of movement and stuff. Um, I actually had quite big reservations about Haaland until very recently. I mean, despite all of his goals, I thought there was um, a sense to say that you know you can score as many goals as you like, but as sort of I know Jamie Carragher has been sort of saying the whole thing about he's actually made Manchester City worse. And again, until very recently, I'd have said I, I would have absolutely agreed with that, and I think that. There is a sense to say that well, it doesn't matter. You can score as many goals as you like. If you being in the team is is you know making the team perform, you know less well, 
and as we've seen, I mean, till, until very recently, they were behind Arsenal in the league and, and not particularly, I think, again, until the last few, and other than in the last few weeks, I think most Manchester City fans would say this has been not a particularly strong season at all for them. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm speaking to a few people about, about this and I, I sort of liken it to um, a goalkeeper. Let's say Manchester City brought in this unbelievable shot-stopping goalkeeper who was just as, to use to use your word there, a freak, you know, who would just save shots right left and set the, uh, you know, in, in any which way and just be, be able to produce things that other keepers won't be able to do. But let's say other aspects of his game, whatever whatever it might be, uh, distribution, ability on the ball, ability in the box or whatever, isn't quite up to scratch. And therefore the team concedes, you know, more goals than they otherwise would have. Is that a goalkeeper a better goalkeeper? I mean, if he's only good at one specific aspect of his role, is, does that make him? Does that make him, you know, uh, a, fan, a fantastic player, or does that make him a brilliant, a brilliant, you know, a brilliant at one thing but a bit of a liability? That's what I thought for a, for a few for for many months. But I think that the way that they've been playing recently, this 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 sort of system change and the way that they're allowing teams to have a bit more of the ball, I think they're they're playing to Harlan's strengths now because I mean he's not perfectly sort of suited to that very intricate plus, plus, plus stuff. Now, I think, I mean, I, I assume it's for Haaland's benefit. They're allowing teams to have a bit more of the ball so that they can, you know, release Haaland on the counter and stuff. And I think now you can certainly say that he has made City that absolute force and, you know, he is unstoppable in those sorts of situations. So um, I, I don't think it's it's insulting to call him a freak. I think freak can be a positive thing. And uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely becoming that. So, um I wouldn't be surprised if if they st- if they stick with this and they can and they can find a way to to sort of make it to the stop. They, they're not dropping as many points as the, in the league. This could genuinely be the start of something incredible. But you know there are still those reservations about Haaland. As, as amazing he, as he is in front of goal, he, he's you know he still has deficiencies. So we, you know we'll see how Pep deals with that going forward. Sounds like we're both on the same team here with the uh, the idea that the scary thing is is that he can break all these records you know, be such a scoring phenomenon in his first season in the Premier League and yet we're still kind of going, he could do it a little bit more, you know, and he could do this and that must be the scary thing for other teams and, and defenders as well. Exactly. Imagine like, because we, we, he sort of scored an incredible amount of goals in, for, in the period where everyone was saying, well, actually, you know, has he made City worse, you know, in games where he was only getting three or four touches or, or whatever it was, you know, it's a few games and he was still doing it. So you imagine if now that the, the sort of new, new system that City have been playing in the last few weeks, if they take that into next season, I mean, you know, could it could he get him 60, 70, 80, who knows? Wouldn't put it past him, would you? Poor old Pixie Dean would be looking down from above and thinking that my record might be under threat here. And he probably has never had that feeling uh, ever since he did get that, that phenomenal season for Everton all those years ago back in the uh, back in the last century. Um, in terms of the here and now, though, um, the two more teams that did pick up wins at the weekend, uh, Manchester United, Newcastle United. Harry, are we now in the sense that these two are the, the top four is pretty much, you know, cut off now that that is it, that it will be probably Manchester City to win the title, Arsenal second, uh, and Newcastle and, and Manchester United rounding out the top four, despite the fact that Liverpool are hitting form and, and, you know, doing their best to try and cut the gap, but it looks like that that top four is almost decided now. I think so. I mean, it's one of those things you never want to, you never say never, but um, it does look as if Newcastle certainly and, and, and Manchester United probably don't look like they're going to drop enough points to, to be caught. I mean, Liverpool have a history of Late season resurgence. Uh, I think it was the, the season after they won the league was twenty twenty one. They spent the majority of the season, um, you know, 
uh, outside the top four and, and raced back in the final few weeks and, and got in there. So they do have previous, and as you say, they they are picking up a bit of a bit of <laughs> a bit of form, even if they're throwing three goal leads away. Uh, and um, so I would not put it past them for I, you know I think for for, for Tottenham it. it I don't think mentally there's any recovering from from the last the last week or so. So I, I'd, I'd say that's that's done for. But yeah, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't Newcastle and Man United. And, and, and to be honest, I think given the way that the season's gone, I think I think the top four as it is now is is an appropriate top four. If the season ended how how it did now, I'd say that feels about right. One, two, three, four. What would we expect then from Newcastle in the summer if they are to be in the Champions League? I've always had this kind of opinion, this thought that. The way that the new owners came in, they seemed very structured and very sensible and that kind of it would be like, you know, not chuck loads and loads of money at it and, you know, hope for quick, quick success, but try and build something. This is a club that hasn't been in Europe for, you know, a number of years. So, and, and in that time, they've been relegated back down to the championship and flirted with relegation more times than they would care to mention. So in terms of where I thought Newcastle might be is that, you know, kind of slowly said that this year it might be a top half finish, might be aiming for the Europa Conference League. I mean, they're pretty much one in the same. If you're finishing, if you're aiming for 10th, you might as well aim for 7th, you know, it's that close. Then next year, kind of, you know, get that European experience, aim for the Europa League, then aim for the Champions League, you know, kind of slowly, slowly get there. For me, it feels like, I'm not saying they said a bad way, that they, they kind of almost might be jumping a few steps here and kind of, you know, getting to where they want to be a few years earlier. That might mean then that in terms of the summer plans that they've got, and you might see this differently, but we could expect a very busy one for Newcastle because the squad, as well as it has been this season, and as well as they've done in the Premier League and getting up to third, they still need a few more additions, I think, if they are to be challenging to get out of the groups in the Champions League. It's another step up again. And of course, if you're in the Champions League this year, the expectation level from the fans will be that they're in the Champions League the season after, the season after, the season after. So do you think that, you know, perhaps, I'm not saying that they're getting there too early, it's always great to get in the Champions League, but in terms of Newcastle's kind of plans that they may have had for this summer and they are kind of going to have to be advanced and accelerated a little bit. I think so, and I, I don't disagree with your thing that's, your statement of saying they've, they've jumped a few steps and it probably will be detriment, as you say to them, because the fans will now expect, right, we've, we're finishing the top four this season, if we finish fifth or sixth next season, then that'll be a bad a bad year. Um, part of me thinks that the, the the main the main thing main priority for Newcastle should be just adding depth to their squad. I mean, they've got a good first eleven, better than probably we realised at the start of the year. But I think Eddie Howe is a big reason for 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 this, the sort of position that they're in, particularly his sort of intensity and, and the way he you know gets us to they run more than anybody else, they press more aggressively than anybody else. And my concern for them is that at some point, especially with a thin squad. That's not particularly sust- going to be sustainable if you're get- if you're having a, you know a, let's say a squad of 15 first team players who are running like mad every every week, uh, particularly now that they're going to have European football next next season, they they are, are going to be at risk of, get- of burning out. So I wouldn't necessarily be like, well, we need to sign X superstar and X superstar for uh, you know the first team. I would just be looking to fill out the squad, get you know get get a cut bit of you no know, a decent player in every position to sort of you know ma- make sure that they can keep their intensity up because I think that's a big that's a almost you know biggest part of their identity and it's what makes them such a formidable team so I, I would I, if I was Eddie Howe that's why I would be prioritizing uh not that I can I'm in a position to tell Eddie Howe what to do though Harry, now switching and uh, looking ahead to the games that we've got coming up this week. Uh, another, you know, not a full Premier League fixture list, but we've certainly still got some mouth-watering games to look ahead to. 
Uh, no more so than, than Arsenal versus Chelsea. Maybe not this season as mouthful to him as, as perhaps in previous campaigns, but there's always something about this game. It's always, it always brings out the best no matter where the two teams are, how they're faring in the league, if they're you know doing well, doing badly. There kind of always seems to be nice little plot lines bubbling under. Something happens in the game that's always quite memorable. In terms of this one, I suppose Arsenal do have to get the victory and it's it, that that's all that matters here for them, isn't it? You know, if they are to... Having slipped back down to second for the first time in a number of months owing to Manchester City's victory at Fulham at the weekend. They're going to start the game in second. They can go back top uh, if they do get the victory, of course, but they need that victory more than anything just to kind of give some momentum back into it in mean, this tides race because, of course, the, the results that they've had, um, you know, against Liverpool, uh, Southampton as well, and, and obviously losing against Manchester City last time out, it, it, any momentum that they've had has, has now been rocked. Yeah, it's so important mentally. They they cannot afford to. I, I mean, I was going to say they can't afford to lose. It. I don't think they can afford to to, to draw it either. Um, I, I expected. I expect City to drop points, but again, they, the the way that they've been the way that they've you know been been pl- playing and performing over the last few weeks, I'm starting to kind of doubt it a little bit. Or you know, they might drop drop points in one game. So I think if if there is a if Barcelona drop points tomorrow, there's no coming. I, don't, I really don't see them coming back. Particularly as I think. Ch- you know, as you said, that Chelsea represents a big game, but it also represents, for the first time in however long, an absolute. You are expected to not only win, but probably beat them quite comfortably. Because I mean, Chelsea lost what five on the bounce, uh, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, it, it, there is a chance that because of that, you know, the the crowd will be up and it will give them a little bit of you know a little bit of sort of push forward, but. Um, uh, and uh, you know the difficulty with with it is is uh, you know who knows how Chelsea are going to react because obviously Chelsea got no nothing to play for, but they're at danger of sort of really getting th- you know things becoming really really disastrous and and uh, in some ways I think having a big game like Arsenal is quite a nice tonic to have. Uh, it might be the right sort of thing ra- rather than say a game against Nottingham Forest or Bournemouth or any other coming up. So um, it is hard it is hard to call. I expect Arsenal to win. Just because I I don't see anything from Chelsea over the last few weeks that that tells me they are capable of beating a top a top side, but Arsenal are in a very precarious position mentally, uh, and if Chelsea manage to score and score early, like you know as as is what happened with Arsenal against Southampton, it, it could you know be a big sort of a uh, pendulum swing and and uh, could be a bit a bit uh, you know leave them in big trouble. But as I say, I think uh, I think if if Arsenal don't win, they that that'll be it for the title race. In his pre-match press conference, Frank Lampard was saying about Chelsea the fact that they're low on confidence, low on performance levels as well. I suppose with my next question, we could probably have an entire podcast and maybe even an entire podcast series um, on on what's gone wrong at Chelsea this season. But from your perspective, where where has it? You know, you kind of you look at it from the outset, and yes, there was the club was in a period of transition, new owners, and lots of of you know key players leaving last summer as well. New players coming in, always taking time to gel. When you kind of look at the money that's spent, you go, oh, they should be doing a lot better than they are. But of course, it's not just the team. There's been enough people in the boardroom as well. Key men that have, key men and women that have been there for numbers of years, leaving their roles behind the scenes as well. The, the Chelsea are a club in transition. Maybe that's, you know, looking at it quite simplistically, that's the reason why they are where they are this year. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on where it has gone wrong for Chelsea? I mean, there's so many reasons why I think it's why I think it's gone wrong. Um, obviously, the things you've mentioned there, the, the kind of upheaval from the ownership change last season and, and everything that's come after that. But I think the, another big big part of it is I think for the last few years, Chelsea have, in terms of buying players, 
and building a team, planning to build a team. The the, the sort of um, rationale behind a lot of those signings has been has been terrible. I, you know, they, they, it's it's been a case of buying individuals rather than thinking right, who does this team need? You know, we'll go and sign that player, this player. Um, and I think to an extent, you're starting to see that. I wouldn't say corrected under the new ownership, but there's there certainly seems to be at the very sort of base level a plan in terms of signing players for the future and building, you know, the building, getting the right sort of players in and stuff. So there there is a bit of a bit of change coming, but um, yeah, I think I think it's a mixture of that. I think I think the team has been built, the squad has been built quite poorly, and then I just think the 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 complete sort of decimation of of of, of everything over you know over the over the last summer change of manager. Twice, obviously, but the change—you know—two Tuchel going out, the new signers coming in, everyone in the boardroom changing, um, you know. And once you start losing games, the morale, the morale dips. And I, 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 mean, I think the last time I was on, and I may have mentioned it to you, I, I don't think it's worth analysing the last few months too sort of overtly, I because I just think that once once you get to a certain point of, you know, form. A, a bad run of form it's very hard to turn around particularly when you know well we're, we're absolutely fine we're not going to get relegated uh we've got nothing to play for you know above us in the table so let's just get to the end of the season i think everyone at chelsea has that in their minds please let us just get to the end of the season so we can you know we can get the new manager in we can have a proper pre-season and stuff um because it must it must be hard from from a from the player's perspective to sort of motivate yourself particularly when everything has been going so sort of miserably uh, it must be hard to 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 get up and go right. We're going to perform really cohesively, particularly when you've got a manager who's not you know not is not going to be around next next season in in Frank Lampard. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's as I say, I, I think it's multifaceted. Um, but I, you know, I, I do also think that I wouldn't like to make this prediction, but I, I I think there's a lot of doom and gloom around Chelsea at the moment. But I think if the right manager comes in, which say if it is going to be Maurizio Pochettino, I'd say that is probably going to be you know, uh, a good choice. And the right sort of business is made over the summer. It doesn't have to be excessive, but if the right players go out and the right sort of players come in, I don't think there's anything, there's any reason why Chelsea can't be in the title race next season. And that might, that might seem a bit bonkers considering they're 12th at the moment. Uh, but I'll happily put my hat on that pair, on that bedpost if, uh, if, well, this is going to come back to haunt me for sure. I'll, I'll happily look ridiculous in 12 months or whatever it is. But, uh, yeah, as I say, I think I think um, they're still in a position financially and sort of you know structurally where they can where they can turn things around. But um, I don't expect it to happen before the end of the season. Put it that way. You mentioned there, obviously, Mauricio Pochettino. Um, you know, we're expecting confirmation almost any day now, really, aren't we? That he will be the new Chelsea manager. From your perspective, is he the right man to take the club forward? And if he's not, who would have been better? Or is it more kind of a case of personalities that might have been a little bit better? I think he he's definitely a very good candidate in terms of if you think that Chelsea needs somebody who's going to be able to build something and, you know, bring a, bring a really good sort of vibe and, and, and play attractive football, whatever else. And I think another big factor is you need somebody who, you know, you don't, you don't assume is going to be able to fall out with the ownership, which I think, you know, like Sir Thomas, Thomas Tuchel has, has a bit of a history of that. He did it, you know, PSG and at Dortmund. Um, Chelsea have had managers in the past. Antonio Conte very abrasive. Jose Mourinho very abrasive. So you know, there is a, there is an argument to say that somebody like Pochettino, who's who's very sort of, you know, I don't. I mean, passive is the wrong word, but very. You know, he just he, he able to get on with his job. He put up with a lot under Daniel Levy. There was a summer where he didn't. Tottenham didn't sign any players. 
and he didn't particularly kick up a fuss like other managers might. So I think that sort of profile of manager is going to be good for uh, for Todd Burley, most of all. But I think generally speaking, because I think if Chelsea are going to be building something, it's probably a smart idea to get somebody who's going to not who's not going to be abrasive and and you know arguing all the time and pushing for things. Um, but I also think you know Pochettino was a world class as a world class manager. You know the, the football Tottenham you got Tottenham playing was 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 very good. Um, the you know his his record of improving players is is is, is you know higher than most managers. I think you know he, you could you could sort of compare him to. So you know he's got all the makings of being the perfect project manager. I don't like to use that phrase because it feels a bit cliche. But I think that you know in terms of if you want to put somebody in who you think right you're the bloke for the next five, six years. I don't really know anyone else who would be a better fit than Pochettino. The only downside is, does he have the kind of tactical mouths to compete with your Guardiola's and your whoever else it is, Jurgen Klopp's? Um, that is up for debate. I don't know whether, I mean, he did certainly didn't have the resources to be able to compete with with them when he was a top man. Perhaps with the resources, you might see a bit more a bit more sort of tactical ingenuity. But that would be my only concern with uh, with Pochettino, if Chelsea do get back to where they need to be, or where they'd like to be rather, um, whether he ha- whether he quite has the sort of uh, the, the tactical complexity to to go up against them and, and win is uh, is up for debate. But I, but I, as I say, I think generally speaking, emotionally uh, and and you know in terms of long term, he is absolutely the right the right man. So I think I think it's a good a good move. Wednesday sees Liverpool host Fulham. The other match that night is the one that we're going to look at a little bit more in depth now is uh, Manchester City hosting West Ham. Um, and I suppose, Harry, this there's only one thing we can do at this point. We've already talked about how City are in the groove and Haaland's in the groove at this stage of the season. So is it just a case of, you know, wishing West Ham all, all the luck in the world and, you know, you might come away with, <laughs> with not, not a heavy defeat. Maybe that's the best that West Ham can, can hope for at this stage. You know, in terms of going into this game, we're all expecting City to, you know, regardless of what happens, um, you know, on on Tuesday, night between Arsenal and, and Chelsea, that City again will kind of strengthen perhaps their grip on the top with another victory, take another step towards that title. I mean, you'd you'd expect you'd expect it to be pretty straightforward. I, you know, the thing to say about West Ham is, you know, because because they're a little, you know, they shouldn't really be in the position that they're in in terms of the players in their squad. They've always got the potential to kind of spring a surprise on somebody. I mean, we saw it with Arsenal. I know they were they were not not the, not at you know they sort of didn't match Arsenal, but they you know they managed to get a draw in that game. So um, there is a sense of saying, well, if West Ham just just decides to to turn it on and play a blinder, they could they could do something to City. Particularly as I think uh, you know there, there probably will be a bit of a sense inside City now they're not chasing anymore. There might be a bit of a sense of oh we can take the not maybe consciously, but there might be a sense that we can take the foot off the gas a little bit. You know, Arsenal, they might think, well, Arsenal are, are done mentally, particularly if they drop points against Chelsea. So, um, uh, but yes, I mean, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would I would put my money on Man City and not even think twice about it. And the final game of a busy midweek Premier League action sees uh, Brighton host Manchester United. Uh, and of course, very, very bad memories for Man United in recent matches, be it at Old Trafford or down at the Amex uh, against Brighton. Uh, obviously beaten on the opening day of the season uh, back in August, uh, humbled roughly this time last year, not too far off being about a, a year to the day, maybe a few days out, I think we will be. But in terms of what Eric Ten Hag's done with this squad and how he's transformed Manchester United, is this a, a good kind of benchmark for them, you know, where they had such a torrid time last season, where they struggled against them earlier in the campaign, 
Brighton having a great campaign themselves. This is a real kind of chance for, for Eric Zenerag to say, look, this is how far we have come mentally. We are now stronger. We are now more resilient. We can pick up results at places where we've not had the, the happiest of memories in recent years. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of looking at it, actually. I think, as you say, that, that would be a good a good benchmark, particularly if Brighton are a, are a good side. And obviously they, you know, they beat them on penalties in the, in the FA Cup uh, semis uh, the other week. So they have got that feeling of we can do, we can do it. Um, it'll be a big test because obviously we know how, we know how formidable Brighton, Brighton can be. I mean, they, you know, they managed to smack six past walls with just about their second team. So they, they, they've got some ability. Um, but, uh, but yes, I mean, you know, I think there is still that sense with, with, uh, you know, Ten Hag's team that there is a couple of notches for them, for them to go up and, and, uh, you know, I think a comprehensive win over Brighton could really make a stamp and, you know, say, right, this is our, this is our platform now. We need to expect this on a day, on a weekly basis and, uh, you know, use that to sort of leapfrog into, uh, you know, jump into ne- in next season with a bang. Harry, as ever, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, of course, you can stay up to date before the latest from the busy Premier League midweek pictures that we've got again across the Daily Mirror, the Daily Star and the Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye.